Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Anna Greta, hi, we're in the studio again. It's, it's amazing. so exciting. It's so good. So lovely to actually see faces. Amazing stuff. And what a conversation we had last week. Mm. What have you been reflecting over the past week? I have had com- so many more conversations about adaptation since we spoke with Barbara Norman and Mark Howden last week. Many people who are reflecting on the floods that have happened in Queensland and New South Wales, the way in which we're preparing for natural disasters or failing to prepare for natural disasters. And people are really asking questions about what that what the future might hold as we see the climate continuing to change. For me, that conversation with Mark and Barbara really helped to lay out Uh, a map that will take us forward and to help make us uh, safer and probably more robust. Uh, Resilience isn't a funny word, but we need need to become more robust in face of really nasty, devastating and extraordinary, unprecedented natural disasters. It was an extraordinary conversation. It's one that I'll go back to, I think, many times over the course of the next year. It really was an extraordinary conversation. I've been it's one of those conversations that I've been thinking about and bits and pieces of it have come to me over over the last week. And, you know, I've, I've got to admit, Anna Greta, I have a problem with the word resilience yeah. because I think so often resilience is used to kind of put responsibility back onto individuals yeah. who are coping with more than they should be. But I think both Mark and Barbara mapped out, you know, s- some pathways forward and particularly the importance of political leadership. Yep. When I come into to campus, each day I go past some new developments not far from where I live and they are so dense. There are no green spaces and there was an opportunity for community gardens, for community spaces, and that's all been lost. And that's in the ACT where we've done so well on so many issues. And Barbara's Barbara's recommendations about the need for leadership, but the need for national regulation around development, yep. I think is so important as we think about adaptation into the future. So such powerful messages. Yes, yeah, no, and and key for policy forum to be uh, contending with this policy will make a huge difference to how we contend with an increasingly challenging future in terms of natural disasters. Absolutely. 
So we have another conversation today that I am really looking forward to and one that connects to to what we talked about last week. I will just remind our listeners that Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net and we're based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. If our listeners are interested in hearing more about the Crawford School's graduate degrees and executive education programs, including environmental management, which is extremely relevant to our subject today, to our conversation last week, please visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. When people think of Australia, we might be thinking about beaches or deserts. We think about coffee in Melbourne and we think about the Sydney Harbour Bridge. But we almost always find ourselves considering our wildlife as well, from the boxing kangaroo to our crazy platypuses to cuddly or perhaps not so cuddly, but certainly fluffy looking koalas. Australia's wildlife is unique and extraordinary. But for decades, many species in Australia have been put under enormous strain. Since colonisation, the country has seen the extinction of over 30 mammals, more than any other nation in that time. So what are policymakers doing to reverse this disturbing trend? Well, according to the Australian National Audit Office, the average time it's taken for the federal government to put recovery plans in place since 2013 is over six years, and the progress on actions in these plans hasn't been monitored sufficiently. And according to a new report by the Australian Conservation Foundation, the Australian government has been approving habitat destruction at an alarming rate which is putting some of our most treasured wildlife under even greater strain. So today on the pod, we have Kelly O'Shaughnessy, Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Conservation Foundation, with us here to discuss this issue. Would you like to introduce Kelly? I would love to introduce Kelly, Anna Greta. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So Kelly O'Shaughnessy is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Conservation Foundation. She is on the Advisory Committee for Net Zero Australia, a two-year collaboration between the University of Melbourne, the University of Queensland, Princeton University and Management Consultancy NAUS Group, and they aim to analyse how Australia can achieve a net zero economy by 2050. Kelly was previously CEO of Environment Victoria, and during her time with the organisation, it won a Eureka Award for Communicating Climate Change. Kelly, it's wonderful to have you with us. Welcome to the pod. Hi, it's great to be here. So Kelly, we want to to talk about your new report in just a moment. Um, And I must say that report is quite a confronting read. But to start today's conversation, I just wanted to get your your overall thoughts on the status of wildlife in Australia today. In your view, how is Australia tracking in terms of the health and the biodiversity of our native species, especially in terms of threatened and endangered species? I want to start on the good stuff, and that is how beautiful our natural world here is in Australia. And there's nothing like nature in Australia, you know, magpies warbling in the morning sun or, or koalas snoozing in big old gum trees. We, we love it. And, and our natural world is really what it means to be Australian. And I'm not just making that up. There's been a whole lot of polling, uh, including by the ABC a couple of years ago about what it means to be Australian. And nature came up to the top of that. Um, but what is really terrible is that we are actually a world leader in extinction here in Australia. And we are the number one leader of making mammals extinct. I say making, 
I don't say we're losing biodiversity. We are making decisions. Our governments and businesses are making decisions that are destroying habitat of mammals and, and other critters, and that is making them extinct. So it's a choice. And unfortunately, we are a world leader. So we've got really big problems in Australia. Nature's, nature is in crisis in Australia. There are 2,000 Australian uh, plants and animals and ecosystems that are currently threatened with extinction right now. In this beautiful country that we live in, three mammals have gone extinct in the last 10 years. Uh, we were the first country in the world to have a mammal go extinct because of climate change. That is the Bramble K melamese. And it went extinct. It lives uh, on a little coral atoll in Bramble Cay uh, up in the far north and a sea level rise has destroyed its home and it had nowhere else to go it went extinct. So we've got real problems in this country. Uh, we actually do have a lot of the solutions to the problems. We know why animals are going extinct and we can change that. Extinction is a choice. Kelly, that point that you made about Australians' connection to nature and how that shapes our identity, I think is just so fundamental to this conversation. I've been doing some research over the last few years on, on identity on the east coast of Tasmania, and people talk all the time about the way in which they see themselves within nature and being connected to nature and just how important that is. But I, I just wanted to ask you, you, you pointed out just how poorly we do in terms of the extinction of mammals. How do we go in terms of other animals? I, I assume that it's often mammals that catch people's attention because they're, they're beautiful, we recognise them, we see them around. But what about other species? What are we seeing there? We're actually fourth in the world overall for extinction rates. Because extinctions occurring because we're destroying habitat, in other words, the home of species, any species that are, that is living in that habitat is, um, is homeless, um, when we destroy it. And seven million hectares of habitat, which is larger than the size of Tasmania, of threatened species habitat, has been destroyed in the 20 years that our national environmental law has existed, which is intended to protect, of course, uh, our biodiversity. It's overseeing destruction of habitat and therefore extinction. So we're not rating well on any front. And um, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening understand that Worms and bees and things you can't see are incredibly important and possibly, probably, scientifically, let's say, more important to our ourselves, our lives, than koalas and kangaroos. They might be the love factor, the big mammals, but it's the, the little things that we also really need in this ecosystem that we're part of. You know, humans are part of nature. Mm. I'm careful when I say that because it is true. But we're the ones who are destroying nature and we're the ones who can fix nature. And at ACF, we're trying to activate people to do those things. There's a downside by just saying that we're a part of nature, um, humans, because we're, we're the solution and the problem. Kelly, you've touched a little bit on the role that the Australian government plays in the protection or the facilitation of extinction. And I wonder if you might give us some insight into the role that government can play, how the Australian government is managing threatened species, and perhaps give us some ideas about what you would like to see as well. I would love to see our governments protect nature like it's fundamental to protecting our lives, protecting our health, protecting our mental health protecting the things we love, because it is. You know, nature provides all the air we need, the water we need, uh, 
the, the land we need to grow our food. If you want to take it just from a, you know, our reliance on nature point of view, we really should be protecting it like it is our life support system because it is. Yeah. I would love to see that. And so I think what that looks like is having laws in this country that actually protect the home of nature, the habitat of nature, which is the number one reason why we are top of the extinction listing in the world because Australia is a huge clearer of our habitat. So that means every decision that the government makes, whether that's a state or territory government or a federal government, over habitat of a threatened species, but by and large, the answer to most of those um, requests for a development should be no, and they're not. They're yes. Uh, there's just been a handful in that 20 years, though, that act has existed. There's only been a handful of times when the government has said no to the development, even when it is known uh, habitat for a species that is likely or on the list of you know threatened species, endangered, highly endangered. We're still clearing the habitat. So I'd love the governments to actually use the current law uh, better, but we need to improve the law. It's, you can drive a mining truck through the loopholes in these laws. ACF has tried to tackle a lot of the law, the decisions legally, and you just can't because it's so weak and it's so up to the minister to make the decision. And the minister, of course, is a member of a political party and politics gets in the way. And we've been able to actually link between political donations to a party and a decision that was made that benefited that donor. Now, you can't prove things like corruption, but you can create links and say, hey, this, this is what happened. This is what's happening in this country. I'd also love to see a national EPA. Mm. So let's get the politics out of decision-making about what we do with our habitat. We have EPAs in, in states and territories, and the politics is out of a lot of those decisions because they are separate statutory authorities. I think that's what we need at the national level to make sure that these last remaining habitats we have for threatened species are protected. Development can still occur, but let's, let's go sustainable development. Um, there are many places where we can develop, just don't do it on threatened species habitat. Kelly, I think that the point you make about um, the short-term politics getting in the way is, is something that, that we see again and again in the conversations that we have on this podcast, that, you know, we have an, an urgent need for some long-term thinking about the things that matter most to our lives, to the health of people, to the health of the planet. But Kelly, I did want to turn now to um, your new report, Aggravating Extinction. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of an overview of what you found in that report, what what the key findings were. So we used publicly available data that's incredibly hard to find. Uh, so we had to get a, our investigations team to uncover all of this available data to have a look at over the last 10 years of federal government decisions how much of those decisions have, what have they done to the habitat of threatened species? So over the last 10 years, the federal government has approved the destruction of more than 2,000 hectares of threatened species habitat. So that's the size of the Adelaide metropolitan area or the size of Fraser Island if we need an equivalent there. 6,500 hectares was home to species that are listed currently as critically endangered. At the time of the approval, 6,500 hectares of critically endangered habitat was destroyed, knowingly and on purpose. 50,000 hectares of habitat uh, for species was listed as endangered at the time. 
The koala lost more habitat than any other animal. It was 25,000 hectares of koala habitat in that 10 years. And, and one-fifth of that was one single project. That project was the Olive Downs coal mine up in Queensland. So the habitat of greater gliders, swift parrots, forest uh, red-tailed black cockatoos and spot-tailed quolls has all been destroyed in those 10 years. They are all a threatened species and species that, I mean, really, are we going to watch the koala go extinct in Australia? We might in New South Wales. That is a huge threat right now. And worryingly, and bad news, Kelly, just in this part of the podcast, I'm really sorry, but worryingly, the rate of destruction is actually increasing. Uh, so if we break that 10 years down into the five years to 2016 and the five years to uh, 2021, the government approved the destruction of 80,000 hectares of threatened species habitat in the first five years. That went up to 120,000 hectares in the second five years. So it is going up. What's driving the habitat destruction? Well, mining was the number one cause for that, but there's a problem there with that information because land clearing for agriculture, which is actually the biggest source, the reason why we clear land in Australia or destroy habitat, uh, is rarely assessed under the national environmental law. It never even makes it up there. So it doesn't matter how important the land, the habitat is, it never makes it for approval. And then logging is exempt. So, so that should show you, this is the mining truck driving through the law. In Australia, you do not assess the impact that land clearing for agriculture or forestry has on threatened species under our national environment law. They've been excluded. I mean, that's Someone's going to look back at this in 30 years and just say, what What were you thinking? Uh, so that is what our report found. Queensland is where most of the, the clearing is currently happening. It's not good news. We knew it wouldn't be good news, of course, but it is really important to uncover this information because it's not easy to find. The Australian public aren't aware of it. We've got uh, investigators at ACF and then they we uh, crowdsource. There's only a couple of investigators at ACF, but we crowdsource uh, investigators around Australia and they get into government information, public available, and, and find it. But there's no database in Australia about what's happening to our land um, and habitat. And there's, there is a threatened species list, which is how I know there's nearly 2,000 species on that list in Australia, but um, we're not connecting the species to the habitat destruction. Kelly, it's, it's a painful thought to think that we could lose the koala in Australia, not to mention all of those, those other species you talk about. But you mentioned that that may happen in New South Wales. You also mentioned that Queensland is where we see the greatest destruction of land. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what you found across different states and why we see differences across states? Do, do we have a good news story anywhere in here in terms of states that are, that are doing it a little better or how do we explain these differences? There is a lot more clan clearing going on in Queensland and New South Wales than, say, Victoria. We just look at the eastern side because Victoria is largely cleared and there's a lot more going on in Queensland because it, there's a lot that's uncleared. And so, you know, we're still uh, <laughs> destroying this country. We, we, we you know, when um, Europeans came to Australia, we started the destruction and that is continuing on. The problem is now that the uh, species are um, contracted to the places and the habitats that they have left and now they're being destroyed and they're not going to have anywhere to go. 
So Queensland and New South Wales are the top areas. Also, the governments have flip-flopped on the laws in those areas. So you've got strong land clearing laws in Queensland and then it's undone by the next government and then it's redone and undone and and the federal government has some responsibilities here as well. And so it really depends on which political party is in power at the time as to how much land clearing goes on, which is a problem in Australia. There's not much, unfortunately, in Australia in the way of good news stories. There is in the US, and the US have actually turned around extinction because they've had programs around species to protect the habitat of particular species. They've got strong laws in place and they've turned around their extinction problem. In fact, when I went to Hawaii once on a holiday, there was a native hen there, a bird, and you know, there's all these signs about being careful when you drive around because they've got the right of way, which I love that sort of stuff. Um, and so we were very careful and we saw them all over the place, but they were threatened with extinction not long before. And then I think the bald eagle as well in the US. So these particular programs around threatened species and their habitat have been successful. There has been a couple in Australia where we're starting to see things like the numbats um, increase in WA, increase in numbers because of protecting particular habitat for them. At the same time, Australia's got some of the most threatened species in the world where there's just a handful of species left, numbers left in the wild. So we can do it. We've seen other nations do it. We've seen it happen in Australia for particular species when you protect their habitat. And it's not just habitat. You also need to protect the species from feral species, invasive species, particularly cats. For all the cat lovers out there, those feral cats that that get away, I I think the number is they kill 20 million animals a night. And I still go, I think that's the number. I'm pretty sure that's the number, but I cannot believe that number every time I say it out loud. It shocks me. So we do need to be dealing with other issues, but the biggest one is the destruction of habitat. That's politically driven and uh, most of it is happening uh, in Queensland. It is. It's sobering. <laughs> the data. Uh, it's. It's. It is difficult for us to get our head around numbers like that, and it's so important. Kelly, according to a story in the Guardian, there, the spokesperson for the Australia's Environment Minister said that the report from ACF looked only at one aspect of the approval process and didn't take into consideration account offset requirements. Could you explain what they're talking about, and and uh, and maybe if you could to, could fill out the broader picture, um, if there are other issues that we should be considering here. So offsets are when a developer is allowed to destroy a piece of habitat, and they replace that habitat elsewhere. They offset it. Sometimes that habitat could be by protecting a, a similar piece of habitat somewhere else, which was already there, by the way. So how's it offsetting? (laughs) It's already there. Sometimes it can be regenerative, and I'm not an expert on offsets, but most of the ones I've heard about are protecting um, other habitat that already exists. Listeners, we're going to take a short break there. I recommend a a sip of herbal tea, and we'll be back talking about it uh, in just a few moments. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I hope the sip of tea was restorative. We're here with Kelly O'Shaughnessy talking about Australia's threatened species, the situation that we find ourselves in and and the loss of biodiversity that we face both now and, and predicted into the future. And I thought we should talk a little bit about the Environmental Protection, Biodiversity and Conservation Act, uh, the review that took place over the last few years and the way in which the governments responded to that review. Kelly, could you give us your insight in, into the, the importance of that legislation, what sort of issues the review identified and, and what sort of changes we might have seen take place? So everything that I've said up until now has occurred under the auspice of the EPBC Act. Well, we'll put that to the short, shortened version. I will often call that the National Environmental Law because so people understand what it is. But that was the, the act that was put in place 20 years ago when we've cleared 7 million hectares and all of the threatened species destruction that has happened since then has been auspiced under that act. So it's broken. It doesn't work. Uh, and so a review was done. There was a review done 12 years ago. Nothing was done. There was a review done in the last couple of years. Hopefully something is done this time around. The review was done by Professor Graham Samuel, and he was he's not an environmentalist. Uh, he's a strong regulator, and he worked with a whole lot of stakeholders, with experts to understand how the Act was working and what needed to change. And he has made a series of recommendations that we, by and large, support that the business community by and large support, that the mining community by and large support. So this is a shock. I mean, we did work very hard across those sectors to get support. But what he has suggested is that there is a lot of process in the Act and clearly it's not working to protect nature. So let's streamline the process, but let's build a stronger process. So he wants the states and territories and the federal government to work better together so there's not that duplication of assessments, but he wants them to have stronger environmental standards in which to do the assessment. So the current Act doesn't have environmental standards in it. Ridiculous, but it doesn't have environmental standards. And so he's recommended a series of national environmental standards that can be applied across the country and at in every state and territory. And that guides decision making, whether the decision maker is a state or territory government or the national government. He has recommended that there is um, regulation, there is a national regulator to oversee the implementation of those standards and to make sure that things like offsets that we talked about earlier, which you know simply don't work, or decisions that are made, to make sure that they're actually implemented. So if there was a decision that you can't clear this area but you can clear these areas, that that 
the proponent has only cleared the areas they're allowed to clear. And so a national regulator and a national sort of audit function to make sure the states and territories are doing the right thing. Because essentially he is recommending to devolve a lot of responsibility from the federal government to the states and territories, which is a hard one for environment people to stomach because if you didn't do it with the strong standards and the strong regulator, you'd simply weaken an already weak law. What's happened is the federal government got a hold of that and said, oh, well, that's a good report. Let's just do the devolution bit and we'll do the standards and we'll do the regulator and the compliance thing later. In fact, we won't even do the regulator. We'll just do the compliance thing later. And, of course, we all just went, no, like it's a package. You, It has to work as a pack in order to work. Otherwise, you are literally weakening a weak law. Um, and that's where we're at. The uh, government tried to um, get that reform through, which, you know, was a weakening of the law. Environment groups said that is not on. Uh, we worked really hard with the crossbenchers who also felt it's not on. Labor didn't think it was on. And so no one really agreed with the government there and they have been unsuccessful so far in getting that law through. But there is a couple of more sitting days at the end of March. And so it's still a threat that they might get those reforms to weaken the act through. Twelve years ago, we had a review. Uh, the government ignored it. Two years ago, we've had a review and the government is cherry picking. And Professor Samuel actually said in his refor- report, um, resist the temptation to cherry pick because this has to work as a package. The business community, the mining community, the environment community all said, okay, it can work as a package. And we want to get outcomes for proponents in the environment world. We want the environment protected and we want people to be able to live and and sustainably develop in Australia. And that means we do have to put in place things like Professor Samuel recommended, but that's not what the government's trying to do. So it will be challenging, I think, to contend with extinction and particularly to protect the threatened species unless we have that sort of policy reform. Every five years, the Australian government conducts a comprehensive review of the state of the Australian environment and releases a state of the environment report. That next report's out quite soon. What are we expecting to find in that report? We'll find in that report exactly what we found five years ago and probably five years before that, And except it might be a little bit worse. We really need to get to some uplifting part of this podcast, (laughs) Um, but that's what we'll find. Mm. So it will be showing what our report showed, that there's more threatened species, there's less habitat. Um, And the other thing it will show is, and there's a lot of information we don't have. We're lacking data, so we can't really tell you a lot. Uh, One of the recommendations from Professor Samuel's report was a, a centralized data system for environmental knowledge and the state of the environment in Australia, which we all very much support. So it's not going to be a surprise. And in that time since, you know, the last State of the Environment report, the environmental budget in Australia has been slashed by 40% by the current federal government of Australia since they were elected in 2013. So, you know, it's most likely going to be worse. There'll be some things in there that won't be related to habitat or threatened species that will be better, like the quality of air is continuing to be better. Anything relating to pollution is tending to get better. We've got really strong state EPAs working on that. It might say some stuff about climate as well that that will be based on very dodgy data and we can talk about that. But, yeah, on, on habitat and threatened species, not going to be good news. 
air pollution's better apart from when we have an apocalyptic summer. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Kelly, in a desperate attempt to look for a little bit of good news, perhaps we can go back to the, the international context. We already know from, from what you've said that Australia is leading the world in terms of extinction. That is not good news. But you were talking before the break about the United States doing some really good work in this area. And I'm wondering, you know, are there examples that we can look to internationally where countries have, have really turned things around or where there are models that we can be looking to and saying that's what can help us move forward? Yeah, there absolutely are. And there's a, actually a really exciting global agreement for nature being developed right now, which I will get to. But there are examples in many countries, and but in the US, you know, being able to really turn around their national emblem from endangered to protected happened because they had strong laws, they had a national regulator, they protected the habitat. The answers are pretty straightforward. Um, that's what we're asking for in Australia. The other thing you need is money. So you do need to stop slashing the budget by 40% and start growing it significantly. The Australian Audit Office recently did an audit of the management of threatened species under that national environmental law. And they found that only 2% of species recovery plans have been completed in the statutory timeframes since 2013 when they did the audit. So once you're an, on the threatened species list, there's a recovery plan that should be developed. It's not being developed because there's not enough resources there to do that. And the average time it took to establish those 2% of plans was 2,355 days. This is the National Audit Office. So you need a regulator, you need strong laws, and you need money to help solve this problem, but it has been done. It's also being done in smaller nations around the world, um, I imagine, who are a little bit more connected to their natural world. And even big ones like China. So this is really interesting. The Well, actually, I hope it's really interesting. <laughs> but the world is currently negotiating a global agreement for nature like we have a global agreement for climate. So it's like the Paris Agreement for Nature. China is leading that global negotiations. It's happening right now as we speak in Geneva. There are negotiations underway. And what the world is circling around is that we should make a commitment that we have a nature-positive world by 2030. So what that means is from 2020 baseline, we stop destroying nature and we start regenerating nature. Pretty straightforward. Um, and habitat is, you know, really what we mean by and large by nature. There might be some um, sub-targets like 30% of the world's ecosystem should be protected by 2030 and 50 by 2050. They would be amazing sorts of targets to set. But that's currently being negotiated. And if it does, it gives us a global mechanism to apply to Australia to make a nature positive Australia and start applying those goals in Australia like we apply the climate goals. China's leading that. China has a lot of examples of restoring habitat. People have been in China changing habitat for thousands of years and they have restored quite a lot in the last 50 years. A different way to the way we would do it and we wouldn't necessarily want to follow all those examples but um, countries around the world are showing the way there are some countries that are pretty bad like us Brazil and then watching these global negotiations for the countries who try and stymie the negotiations Australia will potentially be one of those trying to weaken that that global rule because you know there's a lot of vested interest in clearing habitat and developing it, particularly for agriculture in Australia. 
Kelly, I, I think that global agreement for nature is, is a space that we'll be watching here on, on the pod. I think that's potentially a real glimmer of hope. And when we think about how we begin to turn this around in Australia, how we um, how we stop destroying nature and we start protecting it, part of that, as you've mapped out so powerfully, is government commitment. And perhaps some of it is around how we bring communities along on that journey. And I mentioned the research that, that I've done in Tasmania, and there's a lot of research that shows similar things, that while people talk about their love for nature, their connectedness for nature, how that forms their identity, there's often also, particularly in communities that have been dependent on mining or on agriculture or very extractive forms of economic um, activity, there's this deep concern and often fear that protecting nature will mean the end of the economic viability of their communities. How do we have those conversations and what kind of leadership do we need to see from government so the communities don't feel they're making an either-or choice so that we can build this kind of broad-based support where people don't feel that to protect their own economic interests, we have to be destroying nature. You know? How do we mm. shift that? Because we don't seem to be shifting that very much in Australia. Yeah, it's the, it's the age-old debate. The environment can only be protected at the cost of the economy or jobs or industries or someone's livelihood. It's a false myth, but it's deeply entrenched and I think deeply believed by a lot of people. And if you're, for example, a person who owns native habitat and you want to farm it and you want to rip down those trees, then it is a direct consequence on that person. So just on that answer, I do think it's really important that we have incentives and payments and even markets around protecting habitat so that there is value to a, a landholder to have habitat there. That is already starting to happen in carbon sequestration and that could potentially happen in biodiversity protection as well. So it has to be worth money to people to protect their habitat that's remaining. Now, that's tricky and that it has to be credible systems and there's a whole lot of brouhaha going on at the moment about the lack of credibility in carbon credits and that's absolutely true. We've been part of uncovering the lack of credibility there. Uh, but that's part of the solution. And then it's a mindset change. This is where the leadership comes in. I want to use climate as an example here where for years the debate was that climate action is going to cost us money. And we cannot do it because it's going to cost us everything. Whereas actually not taking climate change action is the thing that's going to cost us everything. We work really hard to change the story. We are seeing people saying, oh, climate action is good for my job, good for my industry and local economy. We really need to do it and we need to do a lot more of them than we are currently doing. ACF has just conducted with YouGov, so professional pollers, the second of the biggest climate poll in Australia. We did the first in August, but this time it was around cost and solutions. And it found that Australians in every single electorate in Australia, so you can take the data down to electorate level, felt that taking action on climate change was good for them and their jobs, their health, their livelihood, their kids' future. And they wanted more action than what is currently happening. The majority wanted. Um, there are certainly groups in Australia that don't support that, but they're nowhere near the majority. So that means that in central Queensland, in the Latrobe Valley, 
in New South Wales gas and mining areas, we're seeing those communities supporting a switch to clean energy and wanting that sort of transformation of their own communities. So one way to think about it, if you live in Gladstone, you're currently exporting coal and gas for burning overseas into a lot for electricity. Well, you could export aluminium. They export aluminium from Gladstone that is made with renewable energy. You could export green hydrogen, so a different form of energy, uh, a different electron. It just happens to be sustainable. Uh, A whole lot of things that you could export, but you would still live in Gladstone. Your kids go to the same school. You would be able to pay off your mortgage because you're paid well. So, It's a mindset and part of what we need to think about and talk about is what doesn't change. So we might be changing what we export, but your life doesn't change. That's the sort of approach that, you know, environment groups or ACF have been trying to take for some years. And you'll see a lot of what we're doing at the moment really talking about why taking action to protect nature or or climate is good for us. And we've got to convince Australians of that. That's starting certainly there on climate now, which is wonderful. wasn't there a few years ago. It's not there on nature. We have to do so much more work in that area. And the biggest problem for us on nature is because Australians love it and so much and it's so beautiful that we don't understand it's in trouble. Uh, So we've done this polling. Uh, We know that the majority of Australians love nature and do not think it's in trouble. It's only those really informed nature lovers that think it's in in strife around 20, 25%, I think, is the the number. So we've got to actually raise the fact that nature is in trouble in Australia, um, and which is a bit sad that you have to do that job. But at the same time, we'll always need to be putting forward the solutions because if people lose hope, they do not believe that there is action that will make a difference. They're not going to do anything. But if you give people hope and turn that hope into action, you can change the world. That's what we advocates do for a living. Kelly, I think we have found some good news. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think you know that that, that poll, that, that, those polling results that you talk about, and and the pathway forward that you've mapped out really does give us a sense of hope and a sense of good news, um, and and a way to to move beyond where we are at the moment. We're going to have to draw this this conversation to a close. I think we could have talked for much longer about these issues. I think we'll come back to these issues again and again over the year. But as we draw this this conversation to a close, we always like to ask people what their one key piece of advice is. And so, Kelly, for people listening and particularly for policymakers, what's that one key piece of policy advice that you'd like to share around Australia's management of threatened and endangered species and and what we need to do urgently? I've already talked about the type of policy change we need. So I want to just take this little moment on to speak directly to the folks listening and say that the future is dark. You know, it looks grim for threatened species, but it's not set. And the people who take action today are going to shape that future. Uh, So that's why I act every day and um, because I know that we can create a better future by doing that. And if we walk away in fear, we're going to get a a worse future. So everyone out there, whatever your role is, if you're a policymaker, a student, if you're going to go off and work for a bank or uh, for government, you can make a difference. Don't get mesmerized by the problems and the complexity before us. Always 
you know, keep the eye on the prize. What is it that we really want to do in this country? We can do it if we get enough people in the country behind the, that vision and behind the big reforms that we've already discussed. So the future is not set and it will be shaped by us taking action. So let's take action. Kelly, that is such a powerful and hopeful message for us to end on. Thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. It's been fun talking to you. Anna Greta, I do think we got to some good news and some hope at the end of that conversation with with Kelly O'Shaughnessy. But wow, we are in a bad place in this country Mm. and our record is so appalling. We need to turn this around. This is such a pressing issue. Absolutely. Uh, Sharon, I do some work on health and climate change. I think a lot about how the environment affects our health and well-being. And one of the ways in which the environment, and particularly biodiversity, can either protect uh, our health and well-being and improve the health of Australians, um, and Kelly talked a lot about both the physical health and the mental health benefits of protecting and preserving nature in Australia. But the really core elements of this are the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, and the water that we need to survive. Protecting nature is not an optional extra for us. It's an essential component of maintaining health and well-being and of Australians. And we really need to make those links within our public policy discussion. And certainly part of the EPBC Review Act was was part of that discussion. I think Kelly tied together in an extraordinary way what some of the ramifications are if we continue down the extinction pathway, really struck by her compelling discussion of the fact that this is a choice that we make to allow animals to become extinct. And conversely, we can choose to value this in our society much more overtly, recognising the win-win scenarios for people and place. Yeah, that sums it up beautifully, Anna Greta. And I was really struck by the response that Kelly gave to the question I asked about those communities where people often think it's an either-or choice. And I see that in my research. It's well-documented. Colleagues like Beck Colvin here at Crawford have done a lot of work around this. And I think Kelly's response about what it is we, we keep and what we lose is so important that we may lose a particular type of economic activity, but we won't lose our lifestyles. We won't lose our ability to live in this particular place that we love. And indeed, our lives may be enriched in so many ways if the choices that we make are different. So I think, you know, there are so many powerful and important and hopeful messages there. And I was reflecting to Anna Greta as, as I heard Kelly talking about some of the work that's being done here at the ANU, um, particularly in the Fenner School where, where you're based. And I think of the work that's being done at Mulligan's Flat where they're looking at how threatened species and biodiversity can be protected and enhanced. And maybe, maybe a little later in the year, it would be a great opportunity to get some of those amazing scientists in to talk to us about the work that they're doing and some of the things that can practically be done to mm. turn things around. Absolutely. No, I was out with uh, with the friends of grasslands in Yarralumla on the weekend, planting trees and and putting in new bits of grass um, as part of a biodiversity protection strategy that's in place here in the ACT. It's so rewarding. It's good good for me physically. It's good for me spiritually, and it's an extraordinary community building activity um, that makes the world a better place. It's it's really there again the win wins of of valuing care for place and valuing care for community. So, Anna Greta. You talked about valuing care, valuing people, valuing place, valuing 
the community around us valuing our planet. And of course, this is a theme that we have been running. We have our hashtag, Value Caring. And as we've said to our listeners, we began this year with something of a tasting plate of uh, some important issues that we'd been thinking about over the summer break. But we're now about to start our next mini-series, and we love a mini-series here on the pod. And we have been thinking, listeners, that our first mini-series for this year should focus on how we think about and how we value care. Of course, this is a theme that runs across our podcasts. But Anna Greta and I thought it would be a really great start to to, to the year, a great start with our first mini-series to put care at the centre and to think very explicitly about what care means across these different aspects of, of our lives, what it means when we talk about care for the planet. We started that conversation today. So we've got a really exciting mini-series starting next week where we're going to really think deeply about what care is, about care, about connection and about community, both locally and globally. So I'm very excited about this. I'm so looking forward to it. And I know that during this period of our mini-series, we'll have, of course, the federal budget. And I think reflecting on our budget through the lens of caring would be an extraordinary thing for us to do and really show, I think, the benefits of that as as a framework. And of course, we'll likely head into a federal election. And maybe if we can consider some of the issues that are on on the table as part of that electoral discussion through, again, the lens of caring, it would be a great opportunity for discussion. So listeners, we're always interested to hear your thoughts on this, what sorts of things. We've got a a map ahead for the mini-series and we're always interested in your feedback. Yeah, Kelly ended her conversation by saying we can change the world. Anna Greta, through care, we can change the world. We can. We, make, we can make a choice. We make choices about the decisions that we make. These are the things that we have some control over. And we don't lose by valuing caring, we win. Absolutely. So, listeners, once again, thank you so much for joining us today for that incredible conversation with Kelly O'Shaughnessy. We'll leave a link to the publications we've discussed in our show notes on policyforum.net. As Anna Greta said, we love to hear from you, so please do get in touch. You can join our Facebook group. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us there. And you'll also find some really active and interesting discussion about this series, as well as some really interesting discussions around Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny and the National Security Podcast. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. We'll be back next week with the first of our mini-series on caring. But now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. From me, Anagreta Hunter, I'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.